Cradeline Network. I am the Lord, and this is the 17th episode of Big Meg One. My name is Conrad, alongside my friend Eli, and this is the podcast for two Americans patrol their way through the Judge Dredd magazine. This episode, we're covering Judge Dredd, the magazine, volume two, issues one and two, cover dates May 2nd and 16th, 1992. A lot of twos. This episode, <laughs> we got the start of a new volume in this here magazine. And with it, we've got some new thrills as Dread heads to Texas, the bad man travels to New York City, the Soul Sisters begin their quest, and Devlin Waugh steals the show. If you'd already along with us, you find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dread the Complete Case Files 17, with the start of a new case files, uh, Devlin Waugh swimming in blood, and the Judge Dread magazine number 300. All right, how you doing, Eli? Stoked for a brand new volume? I am. And we get to keep the numbers nice and easy, so I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, we started, we, we, we were just at 20, now we're back at 1. I believe the volume 2 will go to the mid 80 or so, so All should right. be exciting times going forward in this here magazine. It's fortnightly, but we'll talk about that in a moment. For now, let's just travel to some new and ex- that with the new edition. Let's travel to some new places with story one: the Texas City Sting. <laughs> Script robot John Wagner, art robot Yan Shimini, coloring robot Gina Hart, lettering robot Tom Frey. All right, all right, Eli. Here we go. So Texas City, also known as Mega City 3, takes up most of the area of Texas in, you know, the state in the U.S. You know what I'm talking right. about. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like Mega City 1 in a lot of ways, but they do wear cowboy hats and they're just extremely like USA. Like they're just sort of all of your jokes and stereotypes about the U.S. Uh, sort of blown up to massive proportions, essentially. Right. Which is fairly fitting for, I think, Texas. If you were gonna, you know, yeah, exactly. exaggerate, go sci-fi with it. Yeah, that's the that's the way yeah, to do it. Yeah, if you want to imagine us, Yosemite Sam as as sci-fi as possible, that's Texasy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dread is in town with warrants for forty-nine perps. He believes are hiding in the mega in this uh, mega city. He wants to round him up and bring him back to MC1, but Deputy Chief Judge Honus, who's kind of a boss hog slash Sheriff Buford T. Justice slash like the ba- the uh, the captain in Cool Hand Luke is against it. He doesn't cotton these outsiders coming to town and doing judging, so he denies Dread the right to arrest these folks and kicks Dread and uh, his partner Colo Vito out of his office. That means it's time for Plan B. Oh, yeah. Dread hands his gun and utility belt to Colavito and sends her back to the ship they came in, then heads to a store called the Wonderful World of Guns. Oh, there he buys his, I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, again, as American as possible. You know, right. It's also very like um, Grand Theft Auto kind of feel here. I gotta go to the gun store. 
buys guns. There he buys a full arsenal. He gets full paperwork for it as well. He uses his badge, his identification. He's like, you got any identification? He just kind of points the badge. He's like, that'll do. Then he heads to the civil courthouse as Colovito leaves the ship, driving a pretty sweet, like, sort of mobile holding tank kind of vehicle. Dredd and Colavito meet up and head to the nearest target as Dredd leaves the courthouse. The Rambos, a husband and wife murder team. Dredd knocks on the door, then comes in shooting. And I gotta say, I love this couple's matching, like, leopard print, halter top, yoga pants, or, like, jumpsuit kind of outfits. Right, and they have matching hair, too. They have it in pointing up into two directions to left and right like absolutely listen this cup yeah this couple is matching they're really into it Mm -hmm. um back at texas central uh dc honus has been watching all this he's like he ain't playing judge in my city lock him up Dredd draws down on one of the Rambos and Judo throws the other. He says he's not here in his capacity as a judge. Why is he here? And then we cut back to the civil courthouse where the judges explain that Dredd filed a bunch of bad debt warrants on all the fugitives and then got a license to collect those debts. So he's sort of a repo man, basically. (laughs) It seems Dredd is accredited with Global Debt Recovery Services and the Rambos owe 88,088 credits back in Mega City 1. And since they can't pay him right now, he's authorized to return them to Mega City 1 to make payment. <laughs> he cuffs one of the Rambos and then the other after smashing her nose with his elbow pad when she tries to attack him from behind. Naturally, to pay the debt, they'll have to return to Mega City 1. And once they cross onto Mega City 1 soil, it seems pretty likely that Dredd will, in fact, arrest them. But hey, that's just sort of a happy coincidence, honestly. Dredd's just collecting some debts here. Right. Obviously. <laughs> Dredd hustles the Rambo in, the Rambos into the catch wagon as the Texas judges look over Dredd's paper. Papers, and it seems like everything is, in fact, nice and legal, despite the fact that he's clearly taken these folks back to arrest them. Then the letter of the law, though, that's important. Right. Um, because of this, DC Honus um, revokes Dredd's visitor's permit. He's got until midnight to leave Texas City, and that's fine with Dredd, although he th- says he'd better get moving. <laughs> they got to go fast, so we see Dredd picking up Dingus McCall for 300000 for alimony, another dude named Scooby, and a guy in a bathtub that seems like he doesn't even really own any money, but they got to yes. take him back to Mecca City one to sort out whether he does or not. All right. That rubber duck is expensive. The guy's bathtub. So that probably costs a pretty penny. Yeah, quack, quack, creditors. Um, <laughs> some addresses are e- are empty. Dredd finds a bloody operating chair, but no Stanley Griever in his apartment. Though he does walk over a special delivery uh, letter that was just sent to him. And I'll m- mention that when the Rambos were picked up, there was a, a, mail, um, a mailman droid also trying to deliver a special letter to them as well, which is interesting. Keep in mind for next episode. Um. Yeah, so anyway, um, there's 45 minutes to go till midnight, and they've only caught 17 perps as well as, you know, killed two of them. Um, they, Colavito says they should probably head, head back to the ship and go home before time runs out, but Dredd wants to get the clings before they go, so they'll catch them on their way out, and we'll see that next time in The Sting of Dredd. I like the story. This is kind of a fun one. I like yeah. the idea of Dread, uh, like using, like in other places, still using the letter of the law to get his way. You know, right? 
Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I have seen him like um, uh, in other, like even countries, uh, but it's almost like, yeah, you're not in your jurisdiction, so you can't really do your cool judge stuff. But putting him in this yeah. light kind of gives him an avenue to still uh, be awesome and, you know, still a stickler. Um, yeah, it's very much like he sort of anticipated that Honus would stop him from doing his duty here. So because he's outside of Mega City 1, he's got to play a little fast and loose with some restrictions and things, which I think makes sense for Dredd. Like, you know, in Mega City 1, because where he is the law, then he works with absolute justice. But when he's other places and he's not the law, he's got to get in where he fits in, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. So seeing him be creative is fun, but I mean, I do wonder. Like, you weren't busy enough with just already Mega City One. You, these guys were important enough that you had to freaking take. You know, I mean, maybe this. he j- <laughs> maybe he just got assigned to fugitive detail or something I, like that. You know, I guess that's true. That makes sense. <laughs> you, you never know what comes from a bu- comes from up top. You just gotta go and get that guy, and they don't care how you do it. Yeah, they're just like, you know, like, hey, Dredd, like, if you're not super busy this week, you know, this is just kick you over to to Fugitive Recovery. You know, it's a good job for folks. <laughs> and on the topic of uh, people having that's exciting adventures to strange locations, Eli. Oh. Let's continue to Story 2, Devlin Script Robot John Smith, Art Robot Sean Phillips, Letting Robot Steve Potter. Uh, John Smith coming in here, of course, of Indigo Prime and uh, other and um, other and Tyranny Rex and other crazy ass story fame. Sean Phillips, who drew uh, Armitage. Yeah, I definitely noticed that art as soon as I saw it. Definitely, yeah. So listen, Eli, I've like for the last month or so, I've been asking British people how to pronounce this character's last name. And let me tell you that they will tell me with a straight face, it's spelled like it's, it's pronounced like it's spelled war, like that. Like there's, they put an R in it. They'll, they'll direct me to videos of people interviewing the author Evelyn Waugh, who wrote um, Brideshead Revisited and the book Decline and Falls, but uh, as, as well as a bunch of other novels and satirical pieces and stuff. <laughs> Like, where it's, like, how to pronounce this guy's name, and there'll be, like, 12 different presenters that all say his name, and many of them say it differently. It's, like, it's rough. I think a lot of it kind of comes down to, like, what kind of English accent you have, which is based on, like, region and your social status and other things like that. It's very complicated, very English. So So I'm going to pronounce it (laughs) definitely. How are we going to be lazy about it? Well, I've heard I've heard people say like like literal like like wog like I've heard people pronounce the G. I've heard people add an R in there. I'm gonna say wa like W H A, and I feel like that is good enough for me. But if other people want to say war, that's fine. You want to say wog, that's cool too. Like there's no definitive way to pronounce this name. All right, all right. I like it. So you made the decision to not really make a decision. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, I'm on it. I should, yeah, I should say I am really excited though to have this to finally get to this character for Devlin Waugh to arrive on the podcast. He's an iconic 2000 AD, like a verse character, and one very heavily associated with the magazine in my mind, at least. Like he's sort of one of the like, oh yes, we're in the Judge Red magazine, so we've got this Devlin Waugh story. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm excited for for him to get here. And yeah, cool. This story is called Swimming in Blood. (laughs) 
a car, a car, a, a Catholic cardinal visits a well-muscled man in a priest collar with a sweet and a sweet mustache, getting his well-muscled back treated by a masseuse. <laughs> he says, despite his beastly two weeks in Ken Kenya, he's just had the church needs him to spring back into action for an event that hasn't quite happened. It's been picked up by precogs and will happen in the next hour or two. At the very least, though, luckily this mission is in the Bahamas. So, you know, enjoy some fun and sun. Sadly, I should say, Eli, that in fact, they're actually under the Bahamas. Right. Um, in this case, in the seahorse-shaped underwater ultra prison known as Aquatraz. <laughs> and here's where I mentioned that this is, isn't the first time we've heard of Aquatraz in the work of writer John Smith. It's a previously show, showed up in uh, Prague 597 of 2000 AD as part of the Tyranny Rex story Soft Bodies. Though I think in that case, it was an Aquatraz that wasn't on Earth. So it was just an Aquatraz. This is the Aquatraz. Yeah. And I <laughs> want to comment on that. It was a. Uh... Because it looks a lot like a seahorse. I was trying to figure out yeah, what it yeah. was. It's, it looks like it's a building that's we're looking at it from the top down, or is this a yeah, ship? Yeah, it's, it's an un, no, it's an underwater prison that's been built to look like a seahorse. Got it. Okay. It uh, just the level of detail you can really tell that it's gigantic, and you're seeing it from mm-hmm. very far away, which is actually really hard to do artistically. Like you need to have really thin lines and be able to put a lot of depth into the yeah uh, texture so that it feels that mm. distance. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does look like a big rusty like structure on the bottom of the ocean for sure. Um so inside a man sits in a chair, his legs covered in cockroaches as another prisoner taunts him, even killing one of the bugs with his first ha- with his bare hands. The first man, Landis, gets up, walks calmly to this other guy and then proceeds to bite his face off like through through his prison bars. Meanwhile, Warden Lawrence Meacham is talking to a pest control guy, Murray, about dealing with an insect infestation inside the prison. Meacham gets words of Landis's face biting and prepares to handle it as Landis himself, now straitjacketed and in a padded cell, seems to call a wave of cockroaches to him, to him through the air ducts in his cell. And then we take a, deep, a, a brief break. <laughs> After the mega city time, after the mega times, I should say, the story restarts as med techs check the body that Landis attacked. He's been killed pretty well, like totally dead, but then a tech thinks he sees the body move, and once they turn away, indeed the body gets up and starts moving around all zombified. Meanwhile, in the pri- in the prison's Jeffrey's tubes, you know, the, the, the tunnels in Star Trek or whatever, Murray the Exterminator is laying fancy roach traps, but is terrified when he looks down through the vents and sees that zombie dude crawling over the murdered bodies of the medtechs. We're gonna need some bigger traps. <laughs> As the uh, zombie heads heads into the prison, there's a security alert at the prisoner at the prison's airlock. Guards scramble. They're putting on rifles and they're putting on armor and grabbing rifles. I should say they wear these helmets, Eli, that look a lot like bike helmets to me, mm-hmm. and yeah. like. They're very cool because you can ha- your hair can stick out from the front of it, so everybody looks real cool with like their hair sticking out helmets and stuff. Right. But personally, <laughs> Just, I don't think I want a helmet that's got a big hole right in the forehead. You know. Right. Seems like a good place to get hurt in your head. Yeah. I, I uh, agree. Yeah. Like I want I want a helmet that where my hair is not visible. You know. Right. That's what yeah. I'm looking for, especially I, on I mean, the top of my head. Yeah. I'd even go with my, my face not visible. You know, if I'm going yeah. for safety. 
let's just keep it all safe. I don't yeah, need a fashion maybe, statement. Maybe if I have some a ponytail or dreadlocks that can stick out the bottom, but that's about it, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so as the zombie attacks the guy in the control room, the airlock opens, and it's Devlin War. You can all breathe a sigh of relief, chaps. I'm here to steal the show. So Murray the Exterminator tries to tell Warden Meachin, Meets him without this zombie, but the warden is locked in his office and quarters and hiding behind his door. He's clearly terrified and having some real mental problem. As we see the zombie dude devouring the the guy who's in charge of all the uh, security controls. Meanwhile, Devlin is uh, lounging in the airlock, smoking one of those long cigarette holders. And cigarette, I should say, while the guards say he can't come in. Like, we got a quarantine to maintain, etc. He explains that their quarantine has been breached, and they'll all be dead soon without his help. He presents his credentials, which is like an ID card of him being a spiritual envoy from the Vatican, and asks for a south-facing room so he can freshen up before the serious business starts. The zombie, the uh, zombie prisoner, or I guess the vampire prisoner, as they start calling him here, so these are vampires and not uh, zombies for the record, Okay. They got a very zombieish look to them, right? You know? Right. Like these are much more sort of feral, like Nosferatu vampires than like state. Um, I do not drink blood vampires. You know, right? I don't know. I still haven't seen Nosferatu, <laughs> but I, I think I understand the reference. Yeah, but like you know, they're like feral and mm-hmm. like sort of walking around killing people. You know, they aren't like 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 their their interest is in is in killing people and making more vampires as opposed right. to. Just like kill people. Finding some su- finding sweet tuxedos and deciding you know, dressing <laughs> fancy or whatever. Right. Posing, etc. Right. Um so but but the guy that was in the security center who's now a vampire is using his um his clearance to start shutting down all the security systems around the prison. Um and meanwhile, Devlin Waugh is changing into a red smoking jacket. And once he's sort of got himself fully changed, he asks to see the warden as Landis inside his cell commands an increasingly large army of, vam- of vampires wandering the halls of the prison. At the warden's office, Devlin diagnoses the warden as having a schizoid breakdown. He's lost him. He's locked himself inside his secure living quarters where he's perfectly safe. He doesn't feel well. And he's not the only one as we see guards and prisoners being attacked and murdered by these vampires. Devlin explains the situation. There's vampires. They're taking over the prison. It's a bad time. And indeed, we see the vampire horde sweeping through through the place because it's a prison and there's no like way out. There's nowhere to run or hide from the vampires as well. Once they start coming, they're moving like a fever through the hall. Um, and, and they're all being helped by the, uh, by the uh, prison security guy who's able to open all the gates and doors and cells and stuff as they come to them. One group goes to, tur- to turn the regular prisoners into vampires, while another one he- heads down to the maximum security block where they keep the real monsters. Mass murderers like some dude named Frenzy who recognizes the vampires instantly one of those the devil knows his own kind of thing Uh, mr deets who we see huddling around some stuffed animals and acting all crazy and erwin claterman a genius with a massive body count they say his iq is like 228 and his body count is twice that oh yeah (laughs) though landis waits in his cell still straight jacketed he thinks that he's ready to start ready to bring the war home 
as news reports of something happening in the in Aquatraz in the Bahamas filter out though the chief of the Bahamas Justice Department is keeping a tight lid on it. At the warden's office, one of the guards has managed to close the prison's bulkheads, and the infirmary seems to be sealed off from the vamps with some survivors. The guards want to head down and help those people, but Devlin Waugh is mostly focused on having a spot of brunch, then perhaps a nap to aid digestion, and the guards just look at him with disgust. <laughs> Next time... First blood. Yeah, I uh, really do like this character. It just, I assume he's a, a, a badass just based on how he doesn't care about an entire, you know, vampire army. But um, yeah, his 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 blaséness about the situation certainly implies that he's a badass, at the very least, you know. Right. And he's he's a big muscle man as well, so right. those sort those two things sort of usually go together. Imply that he's pretty tough. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but I like, wanted to note yeah. um, the uh, art change uh, from uh, this artist. Usually, is uses very um, detailed lines, uh, very bold colors. And it, it usually actually focuses a lot on anatomy as well. Uh, so I think it added a couple things. Like when that guy was getting his face bitten off, it felt really like, yeah. oh, no. Uh, yeah. But also he kind of lightens it up and uh, gets a little bit more abstract with the brush strokes when like the zombie, when the vampires are, you know, kind of running through the uh, complex. And it yeah, just definitely. makes you, and it goes like more to a gray tones and everything's just black, white and red. And I just thought that was a really awesome uh, contrast. Uh, and it uh, was even more so because of what you kind of become used to. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's definitely like it's really interesting seeing the contrast, be- especially between the scenes where the vampires are doing stuff and the scenes where where Devlin is talking to people like it really seems like the the Devlin scenes are very tight and controlled. And the vampire scenes are sort of like loose and like more feral or something like that. Right. Yeah. Artists and colors definitely know how to set a mood. I got to give them that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean Phillips is definitely doing a really good job sort of introducing this character and then the setting of this prop of this situation he's got to deal with and stuff like that. I really like this stuff, I think, for sure. And I think we're definitely still coming to grips with this Devlin Waugh character who seems real t- tough and, like, uh, powerful, but is also this kind of, like, upper-class upper, upper class dandy kind of character as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> they kind of say he's like, he's like no coward's head on, on Arnold Schwarzenegger's body or something like that. Like, sort of, sort of <laughs> right. a, dry, a dry wit, but also able to, like, crush, crush bricks with his fists, that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting stuff. And speaking of background things a little bit, let's talk about covers, dreadlines, and the mega news. Um, so yeah, just so just sort of all the non all the non-comic stuff in these issues. Um, let's start with issue one. All new stories in this cover with an image of a dread badge. I believe it's actually from uh Colin McNeil's America with sort of a filter put on on it by Sean Phillips. You know, hey, get out, get away from those filters! By gosh, like putting a filter <laughs> over original 2000 AD and Judge's magazine art—that's my bag. That's why I make the covers for each episode. Get out of here! Um, I should also mention, Eli, that this issue came with a button or a badge, as they call them in uh, England, um, no, that's cool. of a with a picture of Dread on it, saying, uh, "I do it fortnightly" in the Judge Dread uh, magazine uh, <laughs> for the new edition. 
That's fine. Yeah, inside the editorial, inside the editorial welcomes us to the new edition. Does a rundown of the stories within. I should mention that while the magazine volume one started costing uh, one pound and fifty pence, and then ended costing one pound sixty-five, this volume two is starting at a special price of ninety-nine pence, which is like an introductory price, and then it'll go up to one twenty-five in issue five. Um, the magazine's edited by Dave Bishop, who's continuing on from editing it, um, editing towards the end of volume two. The credits um, and the uh, the little message over the legal text in the first one says, uh, Dread Badge of Courage. Pretty solid. The, uh, the editorial also mentions there's a magazine signing coming soon as well. And then mid-issue, there's a big text section actually in the magazine called the Mega Files. I'm not sure how long this will last. It's got both in-universe summaries of the current comics from like the feeling of like a Mega City, news- a Mega City 1 newspaper. And um, then a rundown... And then just sort of general current events and things um, in the current time. There's a rundown of how the magazine and 2000 AD did at the recent Eagle Awards, naming a lot of uh, names of the um, original art contest winners. And then there's a big section of background on Devil and Waugh, including a sort of map of Aquatraz. And then just sort of what went into the creation of this character. Apparently, he the comic was supposed to be called Sin Eater, and the hero's name was Dirk Devlin, but they've since changed that to just calling it Devlin Waugh. These names yeah. evolving, I suppose. Right. Yeah, there's also a set of reader profiles and survey results. We learned that about 10% of the magazine readership is female, which seems to be a high number, I think. And Judge Dredd is, of course, the top magazine character with uh, My Fave America, as number 10, although I guess I don't think the actual person of America Yara is my favorite Dread character, I suppose. Right, right. Um, that makes sense. Interest, yeah, interestingly to me, Young Death has nabbed the uh, the vote for favorite series in Volume 1. Hmm. Edging out America by 0. 0.7. I guess this is one of those dances with wolves versus Goodfellas kind of situations, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, letters ask about the Judge Red Mega Special and request some original art by Simon Bisley. Like, yeah, okay, I'd like some of that too. Like, I'll, I'll happily take something I can eBay for ten thousand dollars. Thanks very much. Um, like, yeah. Oh, Dread and Anderson and Batman and the and the Batmobile. You say yes. I'm sure he'll get right on it. Um, another writer frets about a fortnightly comic hurting the quality of the Meg. Along, um, similarly, and similar words about um, adding strontium dog stories to the bag and then also thinks that there should be a big shake-up in the world of Judge Dredd and don't worry, all those things are coming. Soon enough. <laughs> Next episode. The comic ends with ads for both stateside, the Stateside Comics Club to buy American comics and Forbidden Planet, another comic book shop. Um, issue two then. Can't pay, won't pay. Uh, Joe Dredd's a debt collector as we see him flash his collection agent card while getting chainsawed in a cover by Chris Halls. <laughs> Inside, there's an ad for Rock Power Magazine, home of Heavy Metal Dread, and the editorial announces the start of Soul Sisters and part of a sweet poster. I think part two will be next issue, and it's just sort of is a uh, all the characters in this re- in this launch of the volume two of the magazine. Um... Uh, you can also uh, get uh, now mail send away to get your a copy of Judgment on Gotham in the mail as well. 
<laughs> the Mega Files recap the Soul Sister, while Judge Pal offers big prizes for turning in your parents. Very nice. <laughs> There's also both a preview of the coming Dread Mega Epic Judgment Day, including like sort of which issues to get to get started on this and stuff. This big crossover between the magazine and 2000 AD, which I'm very excited about. And there's ads for comic signings, and then also for the Judge Red Mega Special, which we just talked about here on the show. After an ad for the director's cut of Aliens, there's a character profile on the Soul Sisters, including saying that it combines the Blues Brothers with the Nuns on the Run. And later still, there's more reader profiles, including um, surveys for most wanted characters and stories, both of which lists are topped. Both lists are topped by Judge Anderson, who will be in the mag in just a couple months. The issue ends finally with a sweet ad for the board game Hero Quest, Eli, which I had as a kid and was my first entrance into the world of Warhammer with the miniatures and stuff like that involved in this sort of tabletop uh, role-playing board game, sort of like a Descent or something like that, sort of an early version of that. Yeah, looks awesome. I've heard a lot about that game, actually. I feel like it's a it's one of these games that then inspired a lot of modern games, you know? But I think if you went back and played it, it'd be a little clunky comparison to those modern right. games. You know? Yeah. Well, I'll talk games all day. Another podcast, though. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Come on. We got to figure it out. <laughs> but speaking of um, people uh, uh, theorizing about plans for the future, Eli. Ooh, yes. That's good. Let's talk about Story 3, Armageddon. Script robot Alan Grant, art robot Carl Siskera, lettering robot Gordon Robson. So this story's a little interesting to me, Eli, because there's a lot of like big plans built around it that don't come to fruition, and then a lot of mystery around it as well, to me at least. Um, because in the in all the editorials leading up to this, and all of the previews for what was going to be in the magazine, they talked about this Armageddon story as being part of a multi-book epic. That would be about the dawn of the world of Judge Dredd. It would be this big prequel to Dread World. It said that in the comic. They made a big deal about it. And I'll tell you that it doesn't happen. Like, there's, you know, this is the only entry in Armageddon, basically. Oh, I see. And I, I've heard people say that, like, it got canceled because they found out it was supposed to be an end run around copyright laws that would have let... Escara, Grant, and Wagner, I guess, like regain the copyright control or gain mm. copyright of Judge Dredd generally. I see. Mm. But if they, if they, but like they're saying that it's a prequel story in the editorials and stuff. So it seems like they know that the idea is that it's a prequel story. And so they, right. um, copyright things would obviously be a thing. Plus, like, I mean, they aren't giving them royalties, but they, you know, this comic's legal text does clearly have. Judge Dredd created by John Wagner and Carlos Escara in the in the legal text of it and stuff. It's a, it's a weird, I don't know. I'd love to like figure out what exactly the plan is here, I guess, especially once we finish reading it and we kind of see where the story goes and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just an interesting thing to, like that's sort of just a back thing, com- like that's sort of in the background as we start this story, I guess, mm-hmm. is that it's supposed right. to be part of a multi-part epic that eventually leads to the world of Judge Dredd, actually. Right. I find that interesting because they just the, you know, comics, the stories, you know, I can tell that, you know, they have a lot of people working and they're trying to do a lot of different things. So to build something up like that and then not deliver seems out of character. But 
I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a history of a bunch of stuff that they say they're going to do and don't. But sometimes, but I mean, if this was a thing, it'd be an incredibly long project to do it right. because you know this story is subtitled "The Bad Man" and it starts on July third, nineteen ninety four, the distant future from <laughs> from uh, May nineteen ninety two, where this comic is coming out. You know, two years in the future, right? But that means that it's also 120 years from when Dread's taking place. That's just a lot of ground to cover, it would seem. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, but the, the comic starts as a late-night talk show host is about to interview a reverend from the Church of the Apocalypse about the coming of World War III as tensions mount between military forces in the Middle East. Like... Both the sections of this comic sort of start with this newscaster talking about these sort of about this new stuff, and I think it does make it it gives it kind of a like I um I don't know if you've read uh, the Dark Knight Returns that comic. I know. Um, okay, it's it's a pretty big one. Um, but it's um it yeah it's the movies di- like the the comics different from the movie, but that one has a very like especially in the early sections really has a lot of like if like tries to emulate flipping through TV channels and like listening to different mm. news reports about different things to kind of set a scene. Mm. And Makes sense. this really feels like sort of a re- like I don't know and maybe an homage is borrowing a page from that comics book to kind of set up a scene here. Um some helicopters fly around the Statue of Liberty. Um there's a civilian helicopter flying high over it as a bunch of uh military attack helicopters fly sort of directly around the statue on the lookout for terrorists and we see a boat full of armed guys sort of making its way towards the island uh Liberty Island as well. The passenger in the chopper wants the pilot to land somewhere and when the pilot says no a foot appears and kicks the pilot out the door of the chopper. Whoa, he falls to his death. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> the passenger, a dude with dark skin and a blonde wide mohawk and visor sunglasses that are like stuck to his face. Like he's kind of got like a Jordy LaForge thing going on, but like no earpieces. Just sort of in the middle, like like Morpheus's sunglasses combined with Jordy LaForge's, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Jordy's visor from Star Trek. Got um, it. Okay. So, so many references so, that I'm like, do I know this? <laughs> okay, got listen, it. Listen, <laughs> when you talk to Conrad, it's just a complex algebraic equation of references. That's my got that's it. my uh, calling card. <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, the passenger. Um, but so he then flies the chopper over the city as a pair of drunks walk the streets of the metropolis and talk about the apocalypse. They sit on a stoop as a landlord yells at a young woman about owing back rent, then throws her out the front door. One of the drunks explains that his religious information comes from Jehovah's Witness, as the woman, now out on the street, uncontrollably vomits as the words to ring around the rosy play in her head, and as she wanders off into the night. I should say, Eli, it hadn't happened in 1992, but these days, Ring Around the Rosie is inherently creepy to me, I guess. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, been yeah. ruined by all these horror movies where they just decide to freak you out by having, like, two little girls sing it real creepily. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> well, I learned that a lot of actually most elementary school songs are creepy <laughs> for a number of reasons. Is either cadence or how you sing them. But then even if you, like, just listen to, like, the history of them, like... What are these lyrics actually saying? Yeah. It's always just like, 
kids dying in the forest, and that's like the that's and that's Absolutely. the moral, kids. So yeah, yes, that's why just you you can slow you know you can slow them down and have like a creepy kid sing it and becomes terrifying instantly. It's fine, right? Exactly. <laughs> so she wanders off in the darkness. Meanwhile, the ch- on, on a random roof in New York City, the chopper lands, and when a do- uh, when a man comes running out of like the house or the penthouse that's on the roof, he goes to confront the guy in shades. Actually, maybe they're more like uh. Like the shades from the late from from the lady Molly in the book Neuromancer, who or who had um like m- mirror shades surgically grafted onto her face or something. I don't know, a couple different things. But anyway, um, <laughs> he grabs um this guy who I'm calling Shades grabs the uh, guy from the apartment, says the whole world's gonna hurt. You don't matter, and then gouges his eyes out like Three Stooges style. Some for dead. <laughs> The second issue of this story begins with like a, a a term paper or something from 1991 from the agency sent to the inner cabal talking about the biblical concept of Armageddon and then relates it re- relates that book of the Bible the uh, the book of Revelation like the uh, the images told in that book of the Bible to an idea of a nuclear war between Israel and then combined Marxist and Islamic forces leading to a showdown between the Chinese army and a resurrected Jesus. It's complicated. I will say, actually, these sections are, like, what they're talking about here is pretty mainstream. Like, okay, I'm putting mainstream in quotes here, Eli. But, like, if you were in, like, the early and mid-90s and you were really into, like, the rapture and um, the apocalypse and, like, that sort of, like, um, end of the, like, Christian end of the world stuff, that was sort of the main scenario that you'd think would happen of Revelation coming true, basically. Like, this is very similar to what um, was prophesied in the Left Behind books, for instance, say. Um, and then there's footnotes in this paper. Sorry, I did some deep dives on here, so I'm feeling pretty smart. But um, <laughs> the footnotes are all to real books, which I thought was pretty interesting. There's works by people just selling cra- like things about both um, like spirituality and mystic energy, as well as like um, comp- like a weird energy forces and alternate histories and al- alternate ancient alien histories and things like that. Writers like um, Doug Boyd, John White, and Victor Dunstan. And there's also um, a reference, a book by uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Although in that, there's a mistype here because it says um, the Jehovah, the uh, the Watchtower Bible and Trace Society, when it should be the the Bible and Tract Society. Anyway, I, I did research, so we're hearing about right. it. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got to put I get it. Yeah. Sorry. You know, I, I know it's boring to everybody. I just love apocalypse <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> The news, like especially apocalypse stuff from like 30 years ago, because they always say like the apocalypse is going to be next week. And so when it's from 30 years ago, it sort of has some extra dramatic irony to it, I guess. (laughs) Um, The news broadcast continues and he talks about sort of tensions between Israel and the newly founded Muslim Federation with backing from, I guess, not the Soviet Union, but some kind of Marxist state or something. Things are escalating quickly. And the woman that we saw evicted last um, in the previous issue wanders the street. She reflects that her seizures are getting worse. They've cost her her job and now her home. The city's out of money for welfare. 
And now she's bumped into a very skeezy looking dude with a jacket that says Beast on the back. Meanwhile, Shades has arrived at that woman's apartment and asks the landlord where Lori LeMaine is. So I'm going to assume that the lady walking the streets is, is a Lori. The landlord's cagey about it and then sicks his like rot, his a dog on Shades. Looks like a Rottweiler or something. And the Mohawk man just punches the dog straight to <laughs> the chest, killing it instantly in an explosion of blood. Boo! Boo! Don't hurt the dog. The landlord comes after him. And I'm sorry, actually, Eli, I misspoke because it seems that Shades actually just did a straight punch and ripped the dog's heart out, which is not cool in the least. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Listen, I'll, I'll t- listen, I don't care about Judge Dredd earlier in this episode, like, brutalizing people while arresting him. I care about this dog, buddy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, back in the alley... Two of uh, this first Beast guy's uh, gang buddies surround Lori, so she kicks the first Beast in the balls and runs. Good times. (laughs) She escapes through the alley, or through the alleys of the city, but the gang members are hot on her heels, and as she runs, she feels another seizure coming on and just tries to hold it together to escape. Meanwhile, armed men seem to be running off of a Liberty Island, getting back on a boat. They, um try to escape but are spotted by attack helicopters who shoot a missile at them. As they are exploded, they shout um, Allah Akbar, which doesn't seem like very cool. And then the helicopters look at the Statue of Lady Liberty just in time to see it explode with a massive KABAM! When they decide on the sound effects. You know, I feel like it's a a collaborative process. You know, we're all working together. Right. To get the best possible sound effects, right. you know. Krabam with four A's is what they said on yeah. It's fun. Yeah, three, one A in the cray, in the craw, and then three A's in the bam. It's solid. Yeah. I think you actually pronounced it perfectly. Krabam! Like, it was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Armageddon, the Great Beast. And does so, that ever interesting happen? Interesting stuff. I mean, does... I mean... I don't, well, like, because it's supposed to be a Judge Dredd um, prequel, but we know the Statue of Liberty exists in Judge Dredd's time because it's very symbolically, um... Dwarfed by very the judge. symbolically but... dwarfed by the Statue of Judgment, you know? Right. So, but I, I mean, don't like know. It, well, I mean, that can make the, I can think they could build another Statue of Liberty. I was more talking about that next chapter. Is that actually going to come out, or is that... Oh, yeah, 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 okay. yeah. No, this thing's going to go for about seven issues or so. So we've got okay. it for a while. It's got just it. that, like, they say it's going to be a multi-book story. So that means, like, you know, coming back a couple times a year, like, long-term mm. storytelling. You know, got there it. is still a full issue here. Got it. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So that takes us. So you know, speaking of of, of also sort of possibly lo- like a possibly long term, but maybe more short term storytelling, I guess, <laughs> or maybe just a blast from the past, Eli, like the Statue of Liberty herself. No, <laughs> we can talk about Story Four: The Soul Sisters. Script robot David Bishop and Dave Stone. Art robot Shaky Kane. Letter robot Ellie Deville. Soul Sisters, and with it, artist Shaky Kane. We talked about him a bit in the Mega Special episode, um, but I'd like to I'd like to talk to you about him, Eli. Um, to me, I feel like Shaky Kane has a really distinctive art style. 
And I think it really takes a lot of influence from like Silver Age comic artists, I guess, like Steve, like a Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko in like the early 60s. But then I feel like Kane sort of took those artists from those eras and evolved in a completely different weird style from there. That's different from how other artists evolved from that style, including how like Kirby and Ditko's art changed from there, I guess. It, like this art, this comic art feels like, I, like I, I, I want to like call it like platypus comic art. We're sort of like how the platypus evolved in Australia because it's this cl- closed island with its own influences that allowed weird, unusual things to happen. Similarly, shake like Shaky Kane feels like its own unique, like offshoot from this school, from this like group of artists from like 1960s America comics. I guess I don't know. I feel that, and I mean, uh, I was trying to figure out where you're going with the platypus. But uh, that is what I will be calling it from now on. I think it. Uh, I think it. I mean, I don't know. I just like. Really well. I feel like there's artists where you really you can like uh, Kane here. I can just really feel the influence yeah. having read a lot of like Silver Age comics and stuff like that. If you look at like I don't know, like like the an old Doctor Strange or an old Fantastic Four or something like that. These sort of like more angular lines and like solid bright colors and things like that really right. have that feel. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely um, a piece that's like. Um, unique for the time like it's uh kind of has a uh a, a piece of art history in it like it's it's yeah in that uh, yeah it's a it's a it's a weird style i'd say um it, it and works, it's a very though. divisive style as well i think so you know some people like it some people really hate it you know so <laughs> if if you aren't into it don't feel like me sort of having some praises for it means that yeah. you have to like it you know I do what you want to do I think it's actually very expressive, and I think it uh, still goes very well. They still uh, respected anatomy and proportions uh, uh, really well, even compared to some of the more uh, quote-unquote detailed art styles. Uh, hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally a fan. Um, cool. I also wanted to draw attention to a thing I, I can't stop looking at. Uh, first page, guys walking by this trash can, Dino DT Toxic. And there seems to be like, I think that's a type of condom on the floor, but it's two of them it's like one hole and then there's like two ends maybe it's something else right. but yeah, i can't stop anything. seeing that right so i don't know what that's for but whatever not important <laughs> it just set, sets the scene of a weird futuristic brit set i guess right i guess so um so this comic, so it immediately sets itself. It's in Britsit in the year 2176. So it's in the future from the standard Dread timelines in the same year as our Red Razor. And we see a dude, Larry Groke, a grass salesman, is running for his life, pursued by a dude in a suit and various tufts. They prepare to kill Leonard when suddenly the dude in the suit gets hit in the face by a Bible. Oh no, it's a Bible attack. Um, a pair of nuns in jumpsuits with a bunch of two barred crosses. I guess the cross of Lorraine. I don't know, but they show up. They tell the thugs, like, do you think I have two lead-lined mur- I have one lead-lined murder Bible in my cassock or two? <laughs> Ask yourself, punks. Ask yourself, do you feel penitent? Well, do you? And 
these dudes who actually appear to also be religious in various ways. Like one wears one of those like miter priest hats that says preach in the blues. And another one's got a, a bat that says slugging for Krishna on it. I don't know. But they prepare to take these vigilantes nuns on but are instead, as we see from news reports, found by the authorities badly beaten and begging to repent. This seems like bad news, Eli, for the Craze Brothers, a two-headed gangster. He's got two heads. They're named Joey and Robbie. Um, and yeah, he's running the business while his mom demands that he do some that they do some washing up. At the same time, um, a phone rings at some kind of convent where the leader, the sainted aunt, takes a call from someone called Dr. Delirium. She looks through the book of the Little Sisters of Grud and finds sisters Susan, Hope, and Jocasta Faith, who are currently AWOL from the convent. She explains that um, they were mostly in the nunnery for the field hockey and hang gliding courses, but quit when they found out just what the sisters were doing with the donation money. Ooh, very mysterious. The sainted aunt will handle this, though, before it becomes too much of a problem, as the soul sisters putt around the city in their sweet hover cycle with a sidecar. Rest assured, they're good as dead. Next time on Soul Sisters, the soul! Sanctuary. For sure, you cut out there in the middle of that soul, but I think I know what was going on. So, <laughs> yeah, soul sanctuary. I might, right, uh, my, uh, right. my head, my uh, uh, Discord might have cut me. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, exciting times again. Like these guys, you know, these soul sisters gonna have a lot of, re- gonna have some religion jokes. Gonna have some. Uh, yeah, some like like sort of nineteen six. I, I feel like Silver Age kind of like a superhero vigilante kind of jokes and stuff like that. Right. So I'm like those are things that I'm interested in. So I'm stoked to see where it goes. Me too. I'll be right there with you. Yeah, it should be exciting. I don't know. Um, cool. So hey, Eli. With that, we have completed issues one and two of volume two of the Judge Red Magazine. Nice. Feel accomplished. And the. Yeah, and thus, I have one question and one question alone for you, which is what we were talking about in stories for this. Huh, it's tough. Now that we have a whole new crop in, uh, you know, was, all these are new. Let's see. Huh, man. Uh, I feel like uh, we got to get back to the awards where I can, you know, um, uh, go give awards for different reasons. Because uh, mm-hmm. all the stories I like um, have varying amounts. I like the art different amounts as well, you know, and I think all of it uh, works pretty well. Um, but, yeah, it's, just separating them it seems a little tough. Let's see. Um, here's what yeah, I'll there's do. There's only four, I, so it's a little bit, you know, the, like you got to really kind of <laughs> put these dudes in order, you know? Right. I'll say uh, uh, Devlin Wah Swimming in Blood I'm going to put on bottom. Although Ooh. I love the art style and I really like where it's going, it didn't didn't do anything yet. I'm still waiting on that to, to kick off, like um, almost like Judge Death. Like uh, starts off like I'm not sure I'm feeling. It's cool and all, but you know, hey, it really depends on how they deliver on some of these promises. And then at the end, I'm like, okay, yeah, they they delivered. Um, Interesting. Um, yeah. And the trouble is, like, <laughs> it's almost a coin flip. That was that could have been my top. Is what like <laughs> my feelings on it. Um, cool. Well, what's your what's your bottom then? I'm I'm excited to hear uh, this. Uh, see, it's 
it's tough. It's all, you know, they, everybody thinks podcasting is all just fun and games, but you know, it's, it's serious stuff. Um, absolutely. Um, I think I'll put Armageddon. No, I think it's nice. No, here's, here's what we'll do here. I, I got it. Scratch. Scratch what I said before. I want to just start, okay. like, start over. Let's put soul sisters on bottom. Okay. Because, um, I said, uh, they're new and I think they have shown less than, um, uh, uh, you know, um, swimming in blood has shown so far. Uh, Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is very much, you know, they only got one issue instead of two, so they're very much still right. establishing things as we go in here. Right. But I feel potential going as long as they don't go too far into the religious jokes. Because I feel like, not that I feel like it's uncouth, but because I don't get a lot of them. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think there could be a lot of, like, these could be specific, like, nun and Catholic jokes as well, right. which sort of have a limited audience. Right. But I just couldn't keep looking at freaking uh, the uh, Drowning in Blood one. And me loving the art and keeping it, uh, um, so I think I'll have to put it on top. I think it's oh, okay. What? Yeah, reversal of fortune <laughs> yeah. here. Oh my yeah, gosh! I'm, yeah, I'm just switching the whole thing. Uh, I I was just clicking through it and I just kept loving it more. So I just can't stop myself. So um, and I will give them credit for having an interesting enough protagonist that uh, I am very eager to see what happens next. Um, even though, you know, they, they could go very wrong, but uh, I, I could see it going very right as well. So that that's that's how I'll do it. I'll do... Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I feel like I responded to you putting Devil and Wall at the bottom, and now you feel like you've got to adjust your, 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 your choice. Not, I'm sorry. It, was, it, it wasn't, your, uh, it wasn't um, your reaction that uh, made me switch it. It was just me click clicking through, and I just got to, you know, the first page where it's like, you kind of see the um, the structure under the water, and I just was like, mm. "Man, this is so pretty." Can that be? I mean, just that one page. The artist in me is like, "That's top." You got to. You can't put that on bottom. You can't put that nice. underneath. There's too much work and effort put into that. I feel so like I you're know. really becoming a Sean Phillips fan over the course of this podcast. So it's far, true. I don't know. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> an artist I want to try to emulate in some of my uh, work. Also, not nearly as detailed, but. Even the way they frame panels and pages, I find really I mean, impressive. You know, I mean, I think, you know, any way you figure out how to do it is the way to do it. That's my, right. that's Conrad's oh, motto. Yeah, that's fair. I like that. Um, yeah, cool. I think for me, I really like this Devlin Wass story as well, but I think it's just starting out, so I'm going to give it a little bit of room. I'll happily put Soul Sisters on my bottom. I like Shaky Kane, but again, we're just sort of starting up here, and this is a weird story. I think for my top, I actually like this Dread story a lot. Um, I think Yan Shimini's kind of an interesting Dread artist. He's drawing a very cartoony Dread. A very, sorry, a very cartoony Dread, which we don't see a ton of, so I'm happy to see it here. And I like a lot of these images of, um, of, a, of a Texas city and the people within, all these cowboy judges and things like that. Um, and yeah, I think it's a fun, it's a fun story. And I like the idea of just like, like, I love capers, like just, we've got a plan and we're going to sort of, ex we've got a weird plan. <laughs> we're going to execute it. Right. And a caper where that's being, that's like not just in Judge Dredd, but being done by Judge <laughs> Dredd. It's not even like right. Dredd, like trying to stop the caper. It's he himself doing the caper. Right. That's really, that's really great. And so I think, I think I'm, I'm happy to give that for now for, uh, give that my top. Nice. Yeah, that was. Um, I think that was yeah. second place for me because I really liked. Uh, I like Dread and like uh, 
unique situations where he's not just doing the usual stuff. He is still in usual yeah. stuff, but on location now, you know, so that's cool. Yeah, and just like the idea of like I don't know, there's something about just like a uh, like a boss hog type, like throwing his hat and go like, I told him not to be judging, <laughs> and he's judging in my town. I told you not to do that. That kind of right. stuff. <laughs> that really that really tickles my funny bone, I gotta say. <laughs> all right. Awesome. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. That's all we got. As always, you can find Big Mech One on iTunes, Titch the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site, BigMechOne.com. Feel free to contact us at BigMechOne at gmail.com on 2080 forums or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. For all those, check out Big Meg One. That's O-N-E. All written out, and you'll find us. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Zame Kip Miller, and your friends in the 2080 forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and receive a bunch of excellent rewards, including advanced episodes, coverage of modern 2000 AD in the Meg, and even monthly Q&As with Fox from Space Spinner and myself. Then, come back next episode. Remember, this is now a weekly podcast. As the Soul Sisters go undercover, Devlin wars with vampires. Hey, the dead man gets weird, and we'll begin an all-new mega epic with Judge Dredd as Judgment Day begins. And until then, I'm Conrad Ben, we are the dead one. Strong here.